Life becomes hard and problems are puzzling, one is willing to accept some... The Outline World Dispatch Thursday, May 25th, 2017. I'm Anderic Gaillot. Today on The Dispatch. Andy Martino on police surveillance. The NYPD would not confirm or even discuss whether or not this was the actual use of Stingray technology. William Turton on a Bitcoin ATM. You know, a great example of how unreliable and difficult to use Bitcoin can be. And Jeffy Haza on cuts to the National Endowment for the Humanities. You know, it's heartbreaking, it's disheartening. Here's the dispatch. Power. The New York City Police Department is refusing to release information about the alleged high-tech surveillance of Black Lives Matter protesters. And civil rights activists are digging in for a fight that they say represents the power of a creeping police state. A lawsuit filed on Tuesday by the New York Civil Liberties Union seeks information about the surveillance under public records laws. It alleges that police spied on and interfered with cell phones in even more instances than had previously been reported. Andy Martino has the story. Hey, Andy. Hey, Anne. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm fine, thanks. So this story is actually a follow-up of reporting you did last month. Can you give us some background for people who might not be familiar? Sure. Uh, We uh, were able to break a story last month about uh, one of the individuals who's a part of this lawsuit that you just mentioned, an organizer named Arminta Jeffries, who's a a New York uh, Black Lives Matter organizer. And she told us a story which had been previously unreported about how she and several other organizers and activists were crossing the Brooklyn Bridge on December 28th, 2015. They were protesting the decision in Cleveland not to indict the officer who shot and killed Tamir Rice, of course, the 12-year-old Ohio boy who who was killed by police who had a toy gun. And uh, anyway, this protest was going on in New York. They were coordinating via group text as modern protesters tend to do. And all of a sudden, as NYPD vehicles, town cars and vans started driving by uh, these protesters on the bridge, uh, batteries that were fully charged drained all the way to zero. Phone screens went totally white. Texts would not send. All these symptoms, which turned out to be the result of very likely the use of these Stingray technologies. Stingrays are small towers that mimic cell phone towers, so they trick phones into interacting with them. So this happened. Uh, These these things definitely happened to these organizers' phones, and we wrote about that. The NYPD would not confirm or even discuss whether or not this was the actual use of Stingray technology, but that's long been the suspicion of the activist. So Flash forward to this week, Arminta Jeffries, who spoke to us, and two other activists worked with the New York Civil Liberties Union to file a lawsuit to get information from the police as to whether those stingrays were actually used. The response that they got wasn't even a denial from police, but the police invoked something called the Globar response, which means that they would not confirm or deny that such records even existed. So these activists are suing, not even to have the surveillance stopped or not happen again, but just to get basic information over whether records of their phones do in fact exist at the police department. So if they do, if the NYPD were to admit that they were using these surveillance tools, would that be legal? 
They have long claimed. It's a great question. Uh, these are not These are not illegal tools. Uh, the laws as to whether it's okay to use them in secrecy or murky, and the NYPD takes advantage of the, the murkiness of those laws, uh, but they have long contended that any revelation or even acknowledgement that they own Stingrays would compromise security. Uh, in the view of the transparency advocates, it's a classic use of the fear of, say, terrorism to revoke civil liberties. Andy, are there any legitimate reasons for the NYPD wanting to withhold this information? Mm, well, you know, I don't know. I've been reporting on this a bit. This is our third story we've done on this, and I have yet to come across a compelling argument. First of all, that NYPD doesn't help itself in, in getting those arguments across because they won't talk about it. Every story you'll ever read about this will either say the NYPD refused to comment or the NYPD did not return call, requests to comment, return calls. Um, so they haven't really tried to spin any of us to say why they want to use it. They just say, don't ask any questions. This is our business. So, and to be honest, I have not heard articulated to me a reason for use of these tools is as compelling as the reason to, if not not use them, at least be more transparent. I'm having a hard time personally, uh, and speaking even as just trying to be an objective reporter here, I'm having a hard time understanding why that should be okay. Andy, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks, Anne. The future. The price of Bitcoin is skyrocketing. In the past month, it's increased in value by 95%, hitting an all-time high of $2,400. That inspired outline writer William Turton to ask the question, what should he do with his very small number of Bitcoins? Hey, William. Hey, what's up? I heard you had a story about Bitcoin. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, so... Uh, I was sitting at my desk here at the outline today, and I noticed that Bitcoin has spiked yet again. Um, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin's value has been on a huge rise in the past month. Um, it's gone up ninety five percent, and a single Bitcoin is now worth twenty four hundred dollars. So, this Bitcoin that I bought for about twenty five dollars um, has increased in value so much; it's now worth seventy five dollars. And I was kind of sitting and pondering if I should really cash out now. You know, Bitcoin, the price can fluctuate so rapidly just as fast as it can spike. It can also crash. So um, I, I thought about it a little bit, and then I decided to go down to a local Bitcoin ATM, which is just down the street from the offices at the outline, actually. And so I went to this Bitcoin ATM, which was actually in a real estate office, weirdly enough, I asked one of the agents kind of why they had a Bitcoin ATM in their real estate office, and the guy kind of replied, um, I guess the owner is just into Bitcoin. Uh, sure, why not? Everyone is nowadays, I guess. Um, and tried to uh, extract $75 out of this machine by sending Bitcoin to it. Um, of course, just like my previous experience using a Bitcoin ATM, it went wrong. Um, what happened? I sent these, so the machine kind of has this prompt telling you where to send the Bitcoins. And so I was able to send my Bitcoins into the abyss, all $75 worth. Um, and then the machine kind of stalled and didn't do anything. It went back to the starting screen. 
Um, so I called the number on the wall, and I was immediately patched to this guy named Nick, who I guess is the CEO of the Bitcoin Center. And Nick's like, you know, my bad. Sometimes the ATM runs out of receipt paper. Uh, so you won't be able to complete the last crucial step in order to get your cash. And pe- enough people are using them that they regularly run out of receipt paper? I think, you know, the guy in the real estate office says that people are using this machine all the, lo- all the time. But honestly, I think that's a lie. I just think the machine was badly maintained um, <laughs> and that the software wasn't that great. Um, but Nick said that he would be down there in an hour to give me cash personally because he is personally responsible for this Bitcoin ATM, I guess. What? And that so is I was so personable. It was really great custom service at the Bitcoin ATM. Um, and so I waited on the steps and then one of, I guess this guy's employees came out with a crumpled up $100 bill and uh, we stood on the street and I gave him $20 out of my wallet to make up the difference. And uh, I walked away with a nice $100 bill. Wait, so what would you have done if that guy hadn't come down and given you the money personally? So last time I used a Bitcoin ATM, which I'm not sure of, but I have a strong suspicion was operated by the same people, but this time at a different, previously at a different location on Wall Street, right next to the New York Stock Exchange. Um, it took me a couple days to actually get my Bitcoins. I kind of had to hassle a guy over text message, um, some random guy I didn't know who I guess was supposedly attached to the Bitcoin Center. Um, and after a couple days... He was uh, able to transfer some bitcoins into my wallet, but yeah, I don't know what I would have done. Um, probably just kept going back to that real estate office and giving them a hard time until they gave me money. It's a good question. It's um, you know a great example of how unreliable and difficult to use Bitcoin can be. Damn. Well, what are you going to do with your one hundred dollar bill? Um, I talked in the piece I wrote about it about how. Um, $75 is about seven Chipotle burritos. Um, oh, boy. So probably just spend it on food. Okay. Word. Be careful with those Chipotle burritos, though. <laughs> Thanks. Power. President Donald Trump's proposed federal budget, which the White House released on Tuesday, calls for dramatic cuts to spending in an attempt at balancing the budget over the next decade. As Jeffy Haza reported this week, one effect of this proposed budget could be severe cuts to the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Hi. Um, so tell me what's going on with this budget. So back in January, um, actually the day before the inauguration, it came out that in Trump's future proposed budget, he would call for like these big cuts. So this week, two things happened at the National Endowment for the Humanities. The first came on Monday when the chairman of the endowment, William D. Adams, stepped down. So on Tuesday, after the Trump administration's budget proposal announcement, the NEH released a statement saying that they received an appropriations request for $42.3 million in order to essentially close down the organization over the course of the next year. So that money covers all of the stuff that they had kind of already committed to. It covers winding down the staff so you don't have to just fire everyone one day. Um, it covers like short operational things. There's It's kind of itemized down to like the rent to the building for the year, et cetera. So – I think 
a good number of people don't really have a good grasp of what the National Endowment for the Humanities does. What will we be losing when this agency goes away? It's it's kind of – it's a small portion of the budget for one. So it's not like it's this enormous thing that the United States spends a lot of money on. What it really comes down to is you, you go to small towns in different parts of America. You go to different cities in America. Every summer in, you know, say call it a small Pennsylvania town, there might be an art fair or a history speaker comes to the local community center or something. And little programs like that generally get – you know, small bits of funding, but small bits that matter for small communities um, from National Endowment for the Humanities or the Arts. Um, if you've ever watched PBS, if you've ever watched any sort of educational documentary and, you know, watched through the credits, you'll see that a, por- a portion of the production cost was covered by the Endowment for the Humanities. So it's kind of this, it's this broad reaching sort of, you know, it's educational, it's cre- it's covers the arts, it covers community events. It's, it's the type of thing that it's hard to pin down one specific thing that will just go away as much as it's it, it really speaks to the whole character of the country. Like in a lot of communities, there just won't be these types of events anymore. And then I'm curious to know, like in the budget, does it explain why they are getting rid of it? So in the initial budget announcement, a lot of people pointed out that, you know, Trump was essentially using talking points verbatim from the Heritage Foundation And the Heritage Foundation has had a gripe with the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities for quite some time. They've called it things like uh, subsidizing the rich and paying for filthy liberal values and things like that. So the assumption amongst conservatives has really always been that these organizations are inherently liberal because they care about things that I guess the belief is that liberals only care about art, history, documentaries, whatever you want to call it. but outside of that, you know, it's it's part of this broader effort from the Trump administration, which is to just cut spending as much as possible and really wherever possible to reach this goal of, you know, balancing the budget, which Republicans have talked about. So it's hard to really tell, like, what the, the real logic is behind it without speculating, but it doesn't seem like you know, cutting programs that account for 0.1% of the budget is really hasn't that much to do with saving money. Well, will you be sad to see it go if it does go? <laughs> I will be sad to see it go. I mean, it's it, the thing about the 42.3 million number too is that I don't think we, I think we've, we've come very close to getting these very hardline conservative budgets and agendas passed through in America. But I think this is one of the first times when it's it's really going to hit um, a particularly expansive pace. You know, it's heartbreaking. It's disheartening to see institutions that we all grew up with. If we ever sat and watched Bill Nye the Science Guy or any of these shows in any classroom somewhere, and just to think like we're no longer a country that supports that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's. It's sad stuff. Well, I'm going to be interested to see how this turns out. Same. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Anderic Ayo. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.